Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Kerry Weinkoop. We're at Cellar 503 in Portland. It's January 6th, 2021, somehow. Kerry, uh, <laughs> yeah. thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate yeah, this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, first question, and kind of the most important for our purposes today, is why wine? Why wine? Um, well, why wine and why Cellar 503 kind of go hand in hand. Um, I have always loved wine. In fact, funny enough, I actually sold wine for cost plus when I was still in college. May not have even actually been 21 yet. Um, but I g got a job at Cost Plus and they said, oh, why don't you go try out the wine department? And while I knew nothing about wine then, I thought it was pretty fun, but it wasn't really what I figured I would do for my career. Um, so I went off, had my career, worked in nonprofits, um, did fundraising. Um, my husband and I started a, a business together almost 20 years ago now, and I helped him run that business, but we always loved wine. And every time we went on vacation, we would stop at a winery, um, whether that was here in Oregon, other places in the country, or even internationally. And um, we especially loved finding off the beaten path wineries. We didn't want to go to Kendall Jackson down in California. We wanted to go to some of the little guys that nobody had ever heard of before. Um, so about eight years ago now, I started taking wine education classes for fun. I needed something else to do um, other than our, our regular business during the day and wanted to try to learn something about wine. And so I started taking classes at the Wine and Spirit Archive here in Portland. Um, the teacher, Mimi Martin, is fabulous. And about halfway through the first class, I was like, this is it. I want to work <laughs> in the wine world. And I didn't know how and I didn't know in what capacity, but I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And it took me a little while um, to figure it out. I, uh, we have a now 13-year-old son, so he was pretty young at the time. And I didn't want to work in restaurants. I didn't really want to work in sales, like at a distributor. I knew that I didn't know enough to make wine. I was trying to kind of find my way. Um, and uh, we were actually on the beach on a vacation when my husband and I was talking about how I really just wanted someone to send me wine from small producers in Oregon to my doorstep so that I didn't have to do the research to go find them. And so my husband starts Googling like, oh, this would be a great gift for her. I'm going to find somebody who can do this and figured out that nobody was doing that. And so he said to me, okay, here you go. Here's, here's, your, here's your way into the wine business. I was like, you're crazy. We do not need another business in our life. Why would we start a second business? And then about six months later, Seller 503 was born. <laughs> uh, so it really combines my love of wine, um, our joint love of all things Oregon, um, our other business, we do um, technology, um, social media, websites, all those kinds of pieces. So it really folds in our expertise in marketing and technology um, with the wine and with Oregon. So it's a kind of perfect match for all of our passions. So I'm curious, you mentioned kind of starting off even pre-wine drinking age, working with wine. Yeah. What was it about either that time or later, when did wine start to appeal to you as a beverage and, and what was it about wine that appealed to you? Yeah, you know, I, it's hard to remember. What, I think back at Cost Plus, it was just something 
a little different and a little sexier. At that time, Cost Plus actually had a really great wine program where they had in-house sommeliers, wine stewards who were really knowledgeable and they could really run their own shop. And so I was working under a guy who was probably not much older than me, um, but he would have distributors in and he would taste things and he would let me taste them and he really got to design his own program. It's now very corporate, um, uh, dominated over at Cost Plus, but at the time he got a lot of choice and he would pick things that he knew he liked. And I, while knew nothing about wine, it was really fun when I found a bottle for someone and they kind of like lit up mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. oh yeah, this is exactly what I was looking for. Um, as for my own interest in wine, you know, for me, weirdly enough, it was less about the bottle and more about the experience. It was always like, I just have memories of, you know, driving down this ridiculously long road um, down in Southern Oregon, where we thought we were going to like fall off the face of the earth into nowhere. And we ended up at Troon Vineyard, which is one of my favorite places and a, and a really great partner of ours at Cellar 503. And we ended up there and our son was really young and, you know, had been asleep in the car and they just treated us like royalty. Mm -hmm. They came in, we tasted wine, he played on the bocce ball court, we were sitting outside, it was so beautiful. So a lot of my passion or interest in wine comes from that whole experience mm -hmm. around it, mm -hmm. not even necessarily just the bottle, but everything that goes along with it. So as you started to develop your own personal interests and started to maybe even the, the precursor of thinking about something like Cellar 503, how did you learn about wine? What was your experience in getting educated about wine? Um, so we had always just done a lot of tasting, you know, just visited lots of wineries, figured out what we were really interested in. Um, way back in the day, even before our son was born, I actually just remembered this, we had a little wine tasting group with two other couples and we would come together once a month and each of us bought a bottle that I'm sure was really cheap at the time and we would taste them all and then whichever was the favorite we would buy a case and split it up amongst us. I remember two buck chuck being very popular back then um, and I, you know it wasn't even necessarily I think putting a putting a name or even a varietal onto the bottles, but I sort of just developed what I liked mm -hmm. and, and started figuring, figuring that out. Um, and then um, seven or eight years ago, I had a girlfriend say to me, um, you know, you go wine tasting all the time. And I was like, is this an intervention or what? You know, she's like, no, I took a class at this great wine school and I think you should check it out because I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, and I, so I took my first um, class, which was just a one-time um, sparkling wine class at the Wine and Spirit Archive and just fell in love with it. And Mimi is a fabulous teacher and, um, and she got me hooked. And then, and then from there, I started taking WSCT certification courses. So I'm gonna come back to Cellar 503 in a second, but yes. you mentioned your other business. Tell me about your, mm -hmm. your pre-wine life, your non-wine life, life as well. It is sort of still my life. <laughs> um, so my husband and I um, own a business called Mandate Media. We do political consulting. So we build websites, write emails, do social media for political candidates, both here in Oregon and around the rest of the country. So we have about nine employees. Uh, most of them are here in the Portland area, although we do have a DC office. Um, and we work for senators, Congress, uh, members of Congress, nonprofits all over the country trying to get them elected. 
to, to hire office. So I always did the day-to-day -day operations for that business, um, you know, billing, HR, um, you know, those kinds of things. I would, you know, write an email every once in a while when I had to, um, but really sort of keep the trains moving. Mm -hmm. um, that business is still going. I've been out of the day-to-day -day for about four years now, um, but I do still do some of the financial pieces in HR. So you mentioned earlier kind of how the skills you had from that fit into nicely to Seller 503. Mm -hmm. Tell me about as, your, as you have started Seller 503, what, what have you brought in from that that has been helpful for you in starting the business? Well, we're really an online only business. You know, we do, we're sitting here in this great tasting room that we opened about, I guess it'll be five years in June. Um, we opened this tasting room, but we are really primarily an online business. Um, I never wanted to run a wine shop. I didn't want to run a wine bar. I wanted to sell people wine from small producers in Oregon and ship it to them wherever they were. Um, so, you know, our experience, you know, I am super lucky that I have a technology company behind me. You know, I don't have to pay for a website. They build my website and, you know, help me with technology. Um, but also, my husband is great at, at marketing and being really creative and, um, you know, helping me craft social media campaigns and advertisements that really have caught people's eye and been able to, you know, attract people into the club because of our online resources. Um, and we are lucky to have this tasting room, which in non-pandemic times, people definitely bring their friends and they come in and they, you know, we get a lot of folks um, certainly in the door here, but most of our growth is through online mm -hmm. sources. So I want to come back to kind of how the club works, but I want to, I'm going to kind of take you back to, you have this kind of epiphany of <laughs> why doesn't someone do this? Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about the steps of, of actually ha making it happen. and. What was the kind of initial goal? How, how close did you make it to that initial goal? And what were some of the biggest obstacles in getting this kind of a project off the ground? So lots of research, lots of joining other random wine clubs to see how they worked, um, which was very interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the things I am most proud of about Cellar 503 is that we buy real wine from real winemakers and we buy it at the price that works for all of us. I don't go to winemakers and try to like push them down on price to get the lowest possible thing out there. I don't send out, you know, $3 bottles of wine and call it a $30 bottle of wine, which there are unfortunately a lot of national wine clubs who do that. Um, so we learned a lot through that research project process of like, how do they communicate with their members? What does the packaging look like? What does the wine taste like? What do the um, materials in the box look like? Mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot of that. Then there was all, obviously the technology pieces and how do we, how do we, you know, the, uh, our company does the front facing um, technology for us, but there's a whole club, wine club management software and how do you find the right one and how do you set all that up? Um, and then, of course, as any wine person will tell you, then there's the complications of OLCC and shipping laws and trying to figure out all the legalities. That definitely was the biggest hurdle and the most amount of work to try to figure out how that all worked um, and how to set up an account with FedEx and, you know, all those things that we'd never had to think about before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think I had a little bit of unrealistic expectations of how many club members I would get in my first year. It is hard to sell people on a wine club. And I think most 
wineries would tell you that too. You know, it takes a lot of work and energy and a lot of face-to-face -face with people um, to convince them of, you know, a healthy chunk of money every year. Mm -hmm. So I think I had kind of unrealistic expectations that first year. Um, but, uh, you know, since then, and I feel like we've gotten our feet really under us and, and, and had steady growth, this year's been bonkers. We, um, we ended 2020 with twice as many members as we ended 2019. Um, which is I am so grateful for and thankful for and um, you know it's a little hard in these days to to celebrate your successes when so many people are struggling um, but what it's I'm really proud of it and the thing I'm really proud of is that because I have so many members I am able to then support so many small wineries who mm -hmm. really have struggled mm -hmm. I had a winemaker today that I'm featuring in January who dropped off his wine where his day job and his wife's day job are in high-end restaurants in Portland they have had no income for six, nine months. And he was almost in tears today when he dropped off the wine. He's like, you will have no idea how much it means to me to, to have this sale. So I'm really proud that we have been able to grow so much and be able to support other of these small businesses. That's amazing. Tell me about the, how the wine club works and, and does it work how you initially, that initial epiphany, does it work that same way or has, has it uh, adjusted over the years? That's a good question. It actually has remained very steady. We've, we, we set it up the way it has continued. Um, so we choose two different whites and two different reds from four different small producers in Oregon every month. Um, so we only work with Oregon producers, um, and the way I define who's an Oregon producer, that's sometimes controversial over in the Walla Walla area, is anybody whose you know TTB license is in Oregon. So some of the um, wineries, even here in the Portland area, a lot of the urban wineries might buy their grapes from Washington. That's fine. I don't really care where the grapes come from. If they are registered in Oregon, mm -hmm. I consider them to be Oregon. Mm -hmm. And then the other requirement is that they make less than 10,000 cases. So as much as I love Sokol Blosser or A to Z, they don't really need my help. And I wanted to help people understand um, the small wineries in Oregon and um, that wine in Oregon could be affordable and approachable and that there were a lot more varieties than just Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, so I picked 10,000 cases as a fairly arbitrary number. Uh, about 80 to 85% of the wineries in Oregon fall under that category. Mm -hmm. Um, so we have worked with wineries from all now 22 ABAs, um, including the Snake River Valley, which we were talking about. Um, and uh, people can, members can choose from a monthly membership of two bottles or four bottles and, or a quarterly membership of four bottles. Um, so they can kind of pick and choose. Um, they can choose red only, white only, or mixed. So they really can create uh, you know, a membership that works for them. We have um, uh, pickup members or will call members here in the Portland metro area where they can come. Um, Pre-COVID, we had um, monthly tasting events where they could come pick up their wines, taste the featured wines plus bonus pours. We always invited the winemakers to come so that they could get to meet the winemakers and have conversations with them. And then the rest of our members are around the country and we ship out to them. So you mentioned the 10,000 cases is kind of an arbitrary number and like mm -hmm. you say, it captures most of the wineries mm -hmm. in Oregon. 
tell me beyond that what you're looking for in a wine, in a wine or winery that you're going to focus that you're going to feature here. Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, I would say most of our wineries are more in that two to five thousand case range. Although in December we featured a winery from Southern Oregon that makes I think maybe eight hundred cases total. So it it does it does um, you know run the gamut. Uh, what am I looking for in a winery? Um, you know, I meet every winemaker. I visit every winery. It is important to me to not only taste their wine, but actually get to know them. Mm -hmm. um, I tell the stories of the people behind the bottles. Every one of our um, shipments has inserts, uh, paper inserts about uh, the winemakers and um, along with tasting notes for that wine. And I want people to understand who these people are who are making the wine. So just as important to me as the wine is the story. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some not a whole lot in Oregon there are some really corporately owned wineries and while I'm happy to meet with them most of the time it's just not a fit because there's just not really a story there or something interesting to be able to talk about mm -hmm. um, but I would say I very rarely run across a winery that doesn't have at least one wine that I'm interested in um, I'm lucky because I am well known that people approach me a lot I love to get recommendations from other winemakers um, sadly, COVID has really put a damper on me visiting places, and so I am lucky I have a large stable of great wineries that I've fallen back on this last year, and I'm really looking forward to getting back out there and meeting with mm -hmm. new folks and, and bringing more people in. We've worked with close to 200 wineries um, in our six years. Um, you know, I'm looking for uh, unique wines that are still approachable. Um, so as I mentioned, I really want to help people understand that there is more than just Pinot going on in this state. Um, I don't know if you can see the map over my shoulder. Over this, in this area is a list of um, uh, the top, I don't know what it is, 25 most popular varietals in the state, ranked um, lightest to darkest. There's whites and then there's reds. And then the font size shows you the relative number of cases except for Pinot Noir, which would take up half the, <laughs> half the wall if we did it that way. But there's so much going on in this state that is just so cool and so interesting. Um, and so while there's some weird wines out there that are a little that I can appreciate as a wine geek that may not necessarily fit for my club, um, I want people to try different things. And every year, one of our most popular um, themes, so we have a theme for every month, um, one of our most popular themes is September, we do a back to school theme, which is unusual varietals. So try something you've never heard of before. Mm -hmm. So we do Aligote, or we do Saint Laurent, or we do Blau Frankish, or like these really unusual things that there's very little grown here in the state. Um, but I love having, helping people try those things. Um, you know, one of the things I always say is like, if you are doing it right and you are learning about wine and you are trying lots of wine, you're going to run into wines you don't like. Mm -hmm. So we don't expect that 100% of our members will like 100% of the bottles 100% of the time. But we hope that we get it right most of the time mm -hmm. and we hope that they enjoy that sense of discovery and of trying new things. Mm -hmm. What has been the feedback so far from your consumers, from on either side, either the winemakers or the people buying the wines from you? Um, it's, it's been great. You know, I, um, 
I'm, I'm not a wine industry person. I really am an outsider. And I, um, Anne um, Ebenreiter Hubach, who's the winemaker for Helioterra Wines, is basically the only person I knew in the industry. She, she used to work in politics way back in the day, and we, we've been friends for a long time. She was the only person I knew in this industry. And yet, the industry has been amazingly welcoming to me. And, um, you know, I would call people up and explain the club to them. <laughs> Chriselle Cellars, which is in Southern Oregon, we're featuring this month and we featured in our very first shipment six years ago. And I had to really convince them that it was okay that I bought one case of Sauvignon Blanc from them um, to feature in the club. But you know, people, once the word gets around, they've been really welcoming. They love the concept. They love that I'm focusing on small producers. Um, the wineries, especially outside of the Willamette Valley, are so grateful that anyone's paying attention to them, that they, um, you know, they love it. And uh, I really view them as partners. Um, we have a big wine festival every year called Poor Oregon, where we bring together about 50 of our small producers. Um, it was canceled, obviously, this last year. The year before, we had about 800 people attend it on a one-day festival. And you know, I think that that recognition that we are connecting people directly with these small wineries is really gratifying. Mm -hmm. um, our members love that they get stuff delivered directly to their door. They love the stories behind the wines. Uh, they love the variety, that they're not just getting the same wines from the same winery every month. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, they really like, you know, I think there's the growing consensus that the Oregon wine community is producing really high quality stuff, which obviously we've known that for 30 years. But, you know, people around the country are figuring that out. And that, that folks who can't really get access to Oregon wine, it's hard to get Oregon wine in most of the country, really love that they can get mm -hmm. some of these unique high quality producers on their doorstep. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned over 200 or 200 wineries you've worked mm -hmm. with. That's an amazing number. Yeah. Congratulations on Thank that. You. That's really cool. I'm curious. Um, obviously, you you're, you as a as a kind of solo gatekeeper, you're the one who tastes all the wines, meets I all am. the people. Yeah. Talk about the the, the the pressure of that of, of trying to find wines that will appeal to the most number of people, that will fit your themes, that will. Is it difficult for you, as like just from your own solo opinion, to, to say like, okay, this this wine deserves it, this wine? You know, how, how does that work for you as you're deciding? That's a good question. Um, I've never felt, there are occasionally times where I feel like, oh, a wine or two just didn't hit the mark with the club and you can kind of get that feedback. Mm -hmm. But I would say I've been really lucky that I guess my palate is very similar to a lot of people's palates, you know? Um, and, and I think I can, I, I've worked hard to find that line of high quality, affordable, and still unique and different wines. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so I have a pretty good sense of what people will like. Um, I haven't felt a tremendous amount of pressure. I mean, I, it's kind of a luxury. Like, I'm it. So, you know, that's, that's it, yes or no, you know, kind of thing. Um, I very, like I said, I very rarely find a winery that doesn't have at least one thing mm -hmm. um, that fits in. The struggle comes when I'm trying to find things for a particular theme. Um, and the struggle also comes of like, you know, I pick four wines a month, but maybe I hit a winery and there's eight great wines and I've got a list of 17 wineries in my, you know, I've, I, it's hard to get through them mm -hmm. all. And that is, the, that is the pressure for me that I feel bad about, you know, meeting with a great winery with a great story and great wines, and I just can't get them in because, you know, mm -hmm. I, especially mm -hmm. the people who are only producing Pinot and Chardonnay, I'm like, I love you, but I can't. <laughs> I 
you know, I try to do Pinot four times a year and not much more than that. And if that's all you're making, it's really hard to, to fit them in the club. So that's, that's really where the pressure comes is finding the, th the wines that fit the themes. And, you know, just, it's just a long list of great producers out there, which is a great problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you talked a couple times really about, about story and about the story mm -hmm. that appeals to you and, and, and making sure that it, it, it go, you're giving it to your customers as well. Yep. I'm curious, um, what, are the, what are the stories that resonate? What, what resonates with you and re what resonates with your customers and, and why are people so excited about certain mm -hmm. wines or certain wineries? Um, my husband always gets mad at me because he's like, you're telling another origin story here. It's like the, the superheroes and how they got to be superheroes, but it's, those clearly resonate with me. So um, that's usually where it ends up being. Um, you know, also in my very first shipment, I featured a wine from Jackalope Wine Cellars, um, and Corey's become a really good friend. And that was maybe his first vintage, maybe his second vintage. And I remember sitting in a coffee shop downtown talking to him. He's got one of the best stories out there. Um, we call him the Craigslist winemaker um, because he quit his day job as an engineer and decided he would do any job for one day that he found on Craigslist. And he talked his way into a winery job which is not surprising when you meet Corey. And you know, he's had this amazing career ever since. So those kinds of stories really resonate with me. Um, you know, family stories are great. I love the Mesara family. Um, they, they're hilarious people and they make fabulous wine, but they've got a really amazing story about how Mo, you know, came over from Iran and bought this land and then raised his daughters up in this, you know, in this culture, which is pretty amazing to me. Um, so those are the ones that generally resonate the most with me, but everybody has a story. I mean, the real, the real uh, inspiration for Cellar 503 was a winery that is sadly no more, which is uh, La Brasseur in the middle of nowhere, literally in the middle of nowhere down in Southern Oregon, like over the river and through the roads and you know, up the gravel drive. And we, I have no idea how we found this place and ended up there. And it was a retired firefighter from the Medford Fire Department. He'd been a firefighter for 25 years, decided in his retirement, he was gonna clear his land, plant his own grapes, teach himself how to make wine, build a winery. And the wines were amazing. And I stood there and I was like, no one is ever going to find this place. Like how, I don't even know how he can exist, how he can sell his wine. And I really wanted to tell that story, that particular story. Mm -hmm. And um, fortunately was able to get them in the club twice before they decided to really actually retire and, and shut it down. Um, so I love those. Everybody's got a great story. Do you find the, the way the stories resonate with your customers has changed at all? Are people looking for something different now than they were when you started? No, I think they like that story too, the, the, the origin story often. Mm. Um, you know, I um, pride myself that both me and my customers were not snobs. We're not wine snobs. We're people who enjoy wine and we like discovery. So most of the folks who come in here and want to talk to the winemakers, they want to hear how the winemakers got started. You know, they'll ask some questions and we get people who are more knowledgeable than others in here and they want to ask really, some people want to ask really high you know, detailed questions about the winemaking process. Um, but most folks just want to relate to them as a human being. Mm -hmm. And I think um, the wine industry and the winemaker job is very sexy, very elusive. I, I think most winemakers probably would say it's not in actuality. But to people who aren't in it in a day-to-day -day, mm -hmm. um, life, you know, you come out with this bottle of amazing stuff. And how do you do that? And mm -hmm. how do you get there? Mm -hmm. um, 
winemakers, God bless them, you know, a lot of them are farmers and a lot of them have a hard time communicating that across the bar. Um, but, you know, most of them, once you get them going and, and people asking genuine questions, they, you know, they light up and they, mm -hmm. and they start telling those stories. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's changed so much over time. I think people are always interested in how people got started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about establishing relationships with the, with the people you buy from, and obviously many, many, as many relationships now. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you what, how you approach them, and, and how you maybe how that's, uh, that approach is kind of honed over the years, mm -hmm. and how you keep the relationship going even if you don't buy their wine for a few years. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. You know, when I first started Seller Five Hundred Three, I did a lot of like secret shopper kind of visits where I would go in and I would check it out and I would figure out which I would bring friends or whatever and I would check it out and figure out because I just wasn't well known enough yet that I thought that anybody would take an appointment with me. Um, I didn't last very long um, and um, so these days it's far easier for me to go in and actually you know meet directly with them and make an appointment and you know I it's great I'm in a position where most of them come to me you know they fill out a form they say they want to be a part of the club. Um, but when I was getting started there was another club which I will not name, um, in town that has since closed down that just had a horrible reputation amongst the winemakers. They would say, oh, this person would come to us and they want the bottom of the barrel, the, the last things on the shelf. They would push us down on price mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And, you know, the winemakers would sell to them, but ultimately it wasn't a positive relationship. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and that was never, never even entered my mind. We all have to make money in this business. You know, and there's also legalities around there that I think this person was skating uh, skating around. But we, we all need to make money and be supportive here in this industry. And so I've always been very transparent that I'm coming to you. I want this wine. You have published it at this price. You know, I'm going to pay that that price mm -hmm. and um, really treated them like partners. I mean, I needed them, especially in the beginning, I needed them just as much as they needed me. I needed them to talk about me both to other winemakers and to the general public. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, maintaining relationships, I bring them in, you know, the month that I feature them, we do a lot of social media about it. I bring them into our tasting events. They can come and meet our club members and sell additional bottles while they are in here. Um, it's one of the sad things about, many sad things about the COVID times, we can't do that. Um, anymore, um, you know, and then Poor Oregon was sort of also um, a way to reconnect with with winemakers and give them the opportunity to hit a market that they may not um, have um, a chance to hit on a regular basis. We also have a membership card for our members. It's called the um, Explore 503 card, and um, many of our winery partners will offer discounts to our club members so that if you're in Southern Oregon and want to go see Troon, you can get a free tasting, something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another way that I try to maintain relationships mm -hmm. with my winery partners um, so that, you know, we're all in this together and we're supporting each other in this business um, and, and, and trying to get customers to, to go around all of our places. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about about Pinot, and obviously Pinot being the big beast and the, the yeah. big name on your board back there. Yeah, right. But also all the other things that you're trying mm -hmm. to introduce people to. So I'm, I'm curious about um, the, the, the emerging diversity of varieties that you're mm -hmm. seeing. Um, what are you seeing that excites you and, and how are your customers responding to suddenly having all of these options? All these choices. I think they love it. The number of people who come in here and say, you know, dirty little secret, I don't really love Pinot, or who say, I love Pinot, but I just don't want to drink it every night of the week. I mean, I think that 
I've tried to be very clear that's what Seller 503 is about. Mm -hmm. I just had somebody email me who was like, why don't you do a Pinot only club? And I'm like, because that's boring. Like, I'm, that's just not, I'm, that's not who I am. So if that's what you want, you're welcome to find some someplace else to do it. Um, I think they love it. And I think every time I feature something different, you know, they, they, um, they love it. And we always have a, a laugh around here, especially at tasting events, about how to pronounce Viognier. Um, I love Viognier. My husband really loves Viognier. So we've done it quite a bit. And, and, and they love to learn. And they love to try you know, different things. Um, what's been fun to watch sort of in the Oregon wine industry in general, um, I've, I've mentioned Southern Oregon a couple times. It, I've, it's got my heart down there in Southern Oregon. I love it. Uh, and it's awesome to watch how much they have evolved and how much they have mm -hmm. professionalized down in Southern Oregon. And really, it's really an up and coming region. And it's great to watch them maybe not 100% solidify on Tempranillo or other Spanish varietals, but really there's a large focus down there and they do a great job of it. Mm -hmm. And the climate is very similar to Spain and so it grows well down there. Um, so I love to see that they're, they're working hard to define who they are. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's really fun to watch. Um, the other thing, I've mentioned this several times over the years, is to watch the reemergence of Oregon Chardonnay. It's really been fun. Chardonnay is not my general go-to, but and lots of people are, you know, ABC, anything but Chardonnay. But we, I have these conversations every time I feature a Chardonnay, which is like, yeah, you don't like California Chardonnay. You don't like big, buttery, oaky Chardonnay. You like French-style Chardonnay. And it's really fun to watch Oregon figure out what kind of Chardonnay we're going to make here. And it's still kind of all over the map, and I think that's great because I think people want to have different um, style options there. I think we're leaning a little more towards the French style, which I'm glad about, and I think most of the consumers are glad about too. Um, and so watching that whole emergence of the right kinds of clones and really trying to figure out what the Oregon style is has been really fun. In addition to that, are there other varietals that you're seeing pop up on your radar more often that you're kind of excited about for now or for the future? Um, Gamay is always a hit. I love, I love Gamay. Everybody loves Gamay. I mean, they can't plant it fast enough, I think, here. Um, I, I think it's great that people are starting to recognize that we're maybe hitting, you know, maybe an edge of too much Pinot in this state. I've talked to, I, I can't tell you how many winemakers I've talked to in the last year who've said, I'm not making Pinot. I got into this business because I love Pinot, but I can't afford to make it. And there's so much great stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to start with doing these other things. So um, Gamay I love. I love the Tempranillo. I love that there's such a variety that there's even um, cool weather Tempranillo grown here in the Willamette Valley. I think that's really fun. Um, you know, I, I, I like big, deep, dark reds and really high acid whites. And so I also love, you know, the, the Gruner Veltlinger, I think, is, is coming up on its own. And um, some of those whites that are a little more obscure, mm -hmm. but that really fit well with food and the climate around here. And I'm going to turn around and see which ones. I, <laughs> um, Pinot Blanc definitely, I think, is a great addition too, and um, um, is you know starting to come into its own, and it's just a little bit more interesting than Pinot Gris or some of the other whites that are going around. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's lots to watch. Um, we're we'll actually we'll, we're pretty sure this, this is we're talking about pre-COVID, but you know, obviously you mentioned events being a big part of what you mm -hmm. do both here and and in the festivals. Tell me about kind of the events you the events you want to try to have and have had in the past what you found to be successful and kind of what, what it is, how they help your business. Mm -hmm. 
Good question. So yeah, we do tasting events here in the tasting room every month um, where we bring in the winemakers. We pour their, uh, our featured wines plus bonus pours and um, you can't see it, but we have a great outdoor space here and everybody loves to, in, in the summer, pick their spot and spend all day. Um, Poor Oregon, definitely very successful, although a lot of work. Um, so, so I'm not, you know, we're, we're not quite sure what the future of Poor Oregon is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm actually really excited about going forward is taking Seller 503 on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, so my goal for this year is to um, create a mobile tasting room experience um, where we're going to go to a couple of locations um, starting in Southern Oregon. I hope also Bend and perhaps out at the coast um, and set up shop for a week mm-hmm. and do a series of events where I work with my wine partners down there um, bring uh, you know have travel incentives for our club members to come to those places bring in some writers reporters from other places around the country who may not have experienced those places and really do a intense like this is seller 503 and we are here for this amount of time mm-hmm. so I'm really excited mm-hmm. about that mm-hmm. um, we do lots of events um, we I would say we did we were able to open up and do a few months of tasting events this summer um, and we did one event where we partnered with Ember and Vine um, who is a catering company that specializes in barbecue and wine and um, they came I know that was great great combination and they came and um, did uh, offered up a small plate of bites of different kind of barbecue that we themed with our wines for that month and that was very popular so anyway I can and, you know bring in other local especially small businesses especially this year restaurants to try to give them some support mm-hmm. um, you know that's been great we have done a restaurant pairing every month um, since June um, where our club members can go to that restaurant order their food to go and um, eat it with our featured wines for that month which has been a really fun way mm-hmm. to to have um, that kind of tasting experience in your own home mm-hmm. On that note, obviously, talk about food and wine and that, and that kind of interaction there. Tell me about uh, how you prepare the idea of food and wine tastings, like how, how they come to you and what the benefit is for having the food, food and wine pairings for your business. Mm-hmm. So we, at, uh, again, pre-COVID, um, always offered a big cheese and charcuterie um, spread at every one of our monthly events. Um, you know, I want people to enjoy their wine and not overindulge, which is one of the reasons. Um, but I, you know, I also think that there's just a natural, like I said from the very beginning, my memories of wine um, are always about the experience. Mm-hmm. And it's not just standing at a sterile place drinking your one little cup of wine. It's, it's about the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I will have to say, I'm not great at the wine and food pairing. You know, I know what I like and I know what goes well together in my own head. Um, but really when it comes down to presenting those things to the public, I rely on lots of other people. Um, So working with Ember and Vine was great. Um, We did a partnership with um, Steve Jones at the Cheese Bar, um, where he picked out four different cheeses, which was super fun. I've done in the past, uh, like Valentine's Day chocolate and wine pairing, um, which was super fun. Actually, one of our winery partners, um, Seifert in Dayton, he actually makes chocolates, the winemaker, and they, oh, they're just amazing. So I really, um, I know what I like, but I really rely on the experts mm-hmm. who have a lot more food and wine pairing expertise to make sure that those um, combinations are really right on. Mm-hmm. And I love to collaborate with other people, so it's not, you know, all on me. And and there's other other folks out there who can talk about the pairings and who can you know, talk about their own businesses and mm-hmm. with our, with our guests. Mm-hmm. 
So obviously, this is not the first, we've talked about COVID plenty today. Obviously, <laughs> COVID has come up and that's a big change. So I'm curious, yeah. um, kind of it, how it's affected your business. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, there uh, have been negatives you talked about. I know there's some positives as mm -hmm. well from that. Tell me about the, the kind of timeline for COVID for you, how it's affected you so far, and how you've kind of foresee coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly pretty scary there at the beginning. Um, I, you know, I was worried, are people all going to lose their jobs, and so they're all going to want to quit the club? You know, that was my first instinct, was like, oh my god, we're going to lose all of our club members. And that certainly has happened, but in far fewer numbers than I ever expected. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the benefit is, is people are figuring out that they wanna get wine delivered to their house and that they want more wine than they normally would. So I would say our average club member pre-COVID was getting two bottles a month and now they're getting four bottles a month. Um, so we have had an enormous increase in um, club members. Uh, as I said before, we, uh, we've doubled our membership in this past year. Um, we are very lucky to have gotten some great press and there's been lots of um, talk about um, wine clubs in general and how great they are and subscription services and all of that is kind of, you know, in the atmosphere, um, which has been great. Mm -hmm. But everything is 10 times more complicated. Everything. Um, I am lucky that I hired um, a club manager in January and she started um, and she's a part time for me and part time for a distributor that I work with very closely and so but she's here in our office. But you know by by end of March beginning of April our office is very small and we decided like she's I'm working here in the mornings and she's working here in the afternoons. Mm -hmm. like, you know, just as just to the basics, like mm -hmm. everything is just 10 times more complicated and getting people to deliver wine and how are we going to do pickups for our members safely and not have too many people in the space. And then when it, things did open up, how are we going to do tasting mm -hmm. safely, which we did and they were fun and they were just so much work. They like the cleaning regimen and getting in all of the, you can see over there in the corner, we use test tube racks for all of our tasters, which was a great creative solution, but so much dishes. <laughs> and you know, just like every little thing just takes 10 times longer than you mm -hmm. think it's going to take. Mm -hmm. And so I feel very lucky that we are in such a great place. And like I said before, you know, that we are able to support a lot of these small wineries who really had their feet knocked out from under them when the restaurants all closed. Um, but I am really looking forward to being able to do in-person things, you know, with some sort of semblance of normalcy. Mm -hmm. um, so for us, because our tasting room is so small and we rely on our outdoor space, we are not doing tastings this winter. Um, I hope by March things will have loosened up and we can start doing in-person tastings again. I assume we will have to have some, you know, COVID regimen, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, through the summer, I'm guessing. I would love to say it would be a little more back to normal before then, but it's just too hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the things I've learned so hard this last year is I am a planner at heart and there is no way to plan. There is just absolutely no way. I mean, I feel like I've redesigned my business three times in the last year. And so we're just taking it kind of week by week and month by month. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, I, I've got a Seller 503 on the road program hopefully happening in July you know, mm -hmm. hopefully again, mm -hmm. um, getting out there and, and meeting with people and, um, you know, doing tastings with folks. 
um, all outdoors, so that will help mm -hmm. um, considerably. Um, so I'm feeling super optimistic about this year. I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, finally. It may be very small, but there, it is there. And um, I think there's, you know, lots of potential coming out of this. Mm -hmm. I think it's gonna take longer than we all think it is. Um, and I am hopeful that folks, once they can start going back out again, will still continue to see the value of, of the club and getting wines delivered to mm -hmm. their door. Um, so there will be, you know, there will be more changes ahead, mm -hmm. but I'm feeling excited about it. Obviously, the, no the novel solution to an interesting problem. I'm curious, obviously, this is a time that's rewarded creativity and, yeah. and, and flexibility. Yeah. Are there things you've implemented in the last year that you will continue to use or continue to, to rely upon? Um, definitely something around the tasting events. So our tasting events had gotten to be like a rugby scrum. Um, they were like elbowing your way up to the bar to get your glasses. And there's a lot of people for whom that's attractive, but there's a lot of folks, especially our older members, who just didn't love that. <laughs> and so when we changed to a seated reservation only tasting event, so many of my members were like, oh, you have to keep this. Um, so that's a little harder because it's staff intensive and you can't fit as many people in at a time. Um, but I think there are some elements of that we will definitely keep. Um, I really want to be able to get the winemakers back in here, which we haven't done during this COVID time. Having one more body in here just didn't make sense. Um, so I'm looking forward to some sort of hybrid model where we can bring the winemakers back in. We can offer some of our seedings as tasted seedings um, with you know time reservations and a little bit more mellow. And then we still offer that really fun, high energy, bring your kids, you know, kind of experience too. Because we've always been family friendly. I really firmly believe that more wineries ought to be family friendly because if the kids are happy, the parents are happy and the parents will dry, drink more wine. So I you know, kind of don't understand that. So I'm looking forward and we have a great group of kids who always know where the toys are here. And I'm looking forward to getting back to some of those kinds of, mm -hmm. of things. Um, but we'll definitely take some of the things we learned this year and implement them. Mm -hmm. So assuming that the timeline is somewhat accurate and we start, you know, yeah. this year starts to get back towards normal, what are you looking ahead for? What does the future look like for you and for the company in the next five, 10 years? Great question. It's hard. It's hard to, it's hard to think about any of that stuff right now. I feel like we've gotten into this mindset of like, I just can't plan anything because I have no idea. Um, so, you know, continue with the, with the basic model of the club, which is, you know, the, the monthly or quarterly membership. I think another lesson I have learned um, very strongly this last year is that people want to buy wine even if they're not in the club and people want to buy more wine every month. So I really had resisted until this last year selling individual bottles or keeping inventory around, but I ended up stocking up for my monthly pickups just for my club members, and they would come in and wipe me out of wine every month. So I, that probably won't stay quite as high you know once we get post covid but i think i've learned that you know selling one off packages of wine um you know whether it's around a theme or whether it's around a season or having you know purchasing opportunities that are outside of the club model 
I think that is definitely a place that we will continue to explore and grow into. Mm -hmm. um, the club model is always what I wanted to do and is what I want to maintain, but I think there are other opportunities. Um, and then this, this mobile tasting room thing, I'm really excited about that and being able to take it you know, around the state, both um, for my own purposes to, to talk about Seller 503, but then as an event rental, you know, it's really popular to hire an Airstream trailer to bring your drinks to your wedding these days, right? So, you know, ours will be some sort of that kind of model mm -hmm. too. So I think that that um, will be an exciting change. Um, I think, you know, another change is we will, at some point, I hope this year, open up our tasting room every weekend. Mm -hmm. um, so we have only been doing one weekend a month, but we'll start to be a little bit more traditional in that style and be able to um, get the general public in here for tastings. Um, they've always been welcome, but it's it's been mostly focused on club members. So mm -hmm. being able to get a wider range of folks in here and then and be able to do some more creative events and and to bring more of our winery partners in um, to be to participate in mm -hmm. those. So I think just continuing to grow that continuing to grow the presence outside of Oregon um, to really help spread the word about how great Oregon wine is and and you know the variety and the the breadth and the depth as I like to say of Oregon wine is is also um, you know a goal continuing forward. Do you have a, a size in mind that would that would be ideal or that would be too big or do you, is it just growing at this point and figuring that out as you go? Yeah that's a great question. We uh, our, our, we got most of our wine deliveries for January in today and January is always our largest month because it's a quarterly shipment as well as all the holiday gifts memberships. So we have 213 cases coming in uh, in the next 24 hours and if you've seen our downstairs I have no idea where we're going to put it all. Um, so you know I would like to say it just keeps going. Um, that may not be physically possible. Um, we might have to start being creative about an off-site storage and, and you know, logistics of, of bringing it in. You know, I always thought 500 members was my ultimate goal. Um, I'm now at 875, which is crazy <laughs> bonkers to me. Um, so, you know, I don't have a an end goal in mind. I, it, it, the personal touch is important to me mm -hmm. um, and making sure that we have enough staff to be able to respond to customers' needs is important. Um, and to be able to do, you know, the, we'll definitely need to hire a tasting room manager to come in and, you know, once we open up mm -hmm. all of the time. And so that will help out some too. But um, yeah, I don't have a number in mind yet. Although the, I'm really committed to working with small wineries and we're getting to the point where, you know, some, some months my quantities are so big that wineries may not be able to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're really close to, I thought it was gonna be this month, but I think we're really close to having to feature more than four wineries a month mm -hmm. so we'll bring in a fifth you know probably a third red winery to be able to accommodate because you know I ordered 73 cases from seven bridges this month and they fortunately they were able to accommodate that but there's a lot of places that can't mm -hmm. and I want to make sure we still get those small guys in here mm -hmm. on that note that was the next question I had for you was do you worry obviously there's a lot of wineries in Oregon and it's always growing yep do you worry about being oversaturated yourself and running running out of new and interesting things to find and having to recycle places obviously it's not the end of the world but mm -hmm. do you worry about people in your club getting bored or, or running out of interest because you have kind of hit, hit the end of the line of interesting wineries mm -hmm. that's a great question you know i was really determined at the beginning to um 
not ever use a winery more than once and not ever feature the same wine more than once. And that has totally gone out the door, um, even before COVID, but especially this year, I've had to really rely on wineries that I had a strong relationship mm -hmm. with that I knew could safely deliver. Um, so I'm not terribly concerned about that anymore, mostly because we have so many new members. I mean, we were just talking about this over the weekend of like, um, all the planning for the themes for this year, which does get hard to come up with new themes. That is for sure hard. But like half of our members have never experienced any, any of this before. Mm -hmm. So being able to, um, you know, we can recycle stuff certainly because a lot of them, you know, haven't experienced it before. But, you know, I do want to keep it fresh and unique. And the themes in particular is the way that I do that. Um, and I still, while I will recycle wineries, I very rarely have, have recycled the same wine. I've maybe, maybe four times done the same exact wine. Mm -hmm. And they had to be wines that were spectacular that club members just absolutely loved and kept coming back for more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think definitely four or five, maybe at the most. Um, so while we feature a, wi a winery more than once, you know, we, um, we don't feature the same wine from mm -hmm. them. So that helps keep it fresh and exciting. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about some of the varietals you've seen changing in Oregon and maybe changing for the future. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what else you see for the future of the Oregon wine industry from, from your perspective. What is it going to look like in the, over the next decade? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think there's a danger that we're getting too many wineries in this state, um, especially the little guys who don't have an outlet for selling their wine. You know, I see um, a lot of wineries um, that La Brasseur, who was the inspiration for me, who like didn't know how to sell his own wine. Like a lot of places get into this for the glamour, the, you know, romance of creating wine and then have no idea how they're going to sell it. And um, so, you know, I think that there's a danger that we're going to get to that point where there's just too much saturation and not enough support, and not enough sales for those folks. Um, all of that sort of the Oregon Wine Board's problem and not mine, <laughs> you know, trying to get into new markets, right? Um, so I think that that is a little bit of a concern that, that um, that people need to focus on. I really hope that there will be an increased focus on technology in this industry. I've been shocked since I started in this business that the technology for wineries is just crap. I mean, the it's expensive and not very good and there's no consistency. And I mean, there's still wineries who don't have websites at all, mm -hmm. you know, and the club management software is not great and it's too expensive and people aren't doing what they need to do to keep up with social media and, you know, other options. If there was somebody who was willing to come into this industry and, you know, provide sort of a one-stop shop you know, and provide a good quality product at a reasonable price, they'd make buckets of money because it is a big need in this industry. Um, so I hope that that happens. Um, you know, I, there's been this ongoing back and forth, like fad conversation for a few years here about natural wine and clean wine and that whole mess which I think most winemakers would tell you is just sort of a ridiculous conversation because there's no really, um, you know, definitive answer to what is a clean wine or what is a natural wine. Um, you know, I hope that there's more conversation around uh, sort of solidifying um, 
what we do here in Oregon that makes us unique to other places. You know, mm -hmm. I would say, mm -hmm. in my experience, and I know this isn't universal, in my experience, the vast majority of wineries in this state are what people would call natural. You know, they are doing things um, very cleanly with very low intervention, and I think that sets us apart. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see a little bit less infighting and nitpicking about that and a little bit more coalescing about a message about that that everybody could share. Mm -hmm. I think that would really benefit everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this, this may be something that has actually happened to you, but uh, if someone were to approach you and ask you about getting into the Oregon wine industry mm -hmm. in, in some fashion, what would, what would your words of wisdom to them be? People do, yeah, <laughs> come to me and ask me about that. You know, I think um, what I tell them is, you know, like many industries, this is one of those industries you kind of got to start at the bottom and work your way up. I think there's really no, uh, although I would say I'm an exception to that. So, you know, that may not be accurate, but um, if, if you are looking to work in a winery and in production and in that sort of way, you know, Go make friends with your local winemaker. Pick a couple of wineries that you really love where you can get to know the winemaker. You can volunteer for events. You know, especially a lot of the small winemakers, they have volunteers all the time who come in and help with harvest or bottling or, you know, any of those experiences. Go to them, make friends with them, you know, get yourself on a volunteer list, you know, figure out if it's really what you're passionate about, what you're interested in. Um, I would say education is really great. I mean, your program at Linfield is amazing and you know relatively new to the, the entire program. Um, the WSCT courses are great. And now with you know one good thing about COVID, we're all figuring out how to do all this stuff remotely. So there's a lot more opportunity to take really high quality classes and learn more. Um, you know about the wine industry and about you know wine making and all that um, mm -hmm. so I think those are the two biggest pieces I would say um, you know don't be afraid to go and talk to people and make appointments and have informational interviews and pick people's brains you know we're still small enough here in Oregon that you're it's mostly you're going to be talking to the winemaker or maybe their one salesperson and most folks are really um, you know, grateful to have people's attention mm -hmm. and for you know for them to be able to tell their story mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think it's a still a super collaborative industry. It is one thing I think we're really lucky about and it really sets us apart in Oregon is how collaborative our wineries are, really helpful to each other. Um, and, you know, every time I've ever had a need, you know, oh my God, I'm out of boxes. Somebody will show up the next day and drop them off with me, you know, and, and like go talk to a winemaker and they say, you know, I don't really need anybody, but I know that XYZ over here, they really need some help. Why don't you go check with them? I'll make an introduction. Mm -hmm. So it is a lot of legwork um, to get in to this industry for sure. Um, but I think it's still a very open industry that's mm -hmm. open to people who are enthusiastic and hardworking. Right. That's all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything yeah. I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? I don't think so. No, that was pretty comprehensive. Excellent. Well, thank yeah. you so much yeah, for your you're time, welcome. for your story. Thank you. This was fun. Hospitality in this beautiful space. Thank you. We'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more.
and stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.